Joe Joe! They'll fight for freedom wherever there's trouble. G.I. Joe is there. Hey, 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 it's me, Chief Doggy Dog, joined by my co-host, S. Chubby Jub. <laughs> That's it. Now, listen, pay attention, listeners, because we got a super spectacular episode of the show this time. We've got a guest in the studio, and it is the super talented Tom Showtime Showley. That's right, you're probably going to know Tom's work from Godland, that crazy-ass series he did with Joe Casey from Image Comics, and also American Barbarian, the, the epic Revenge Quest comic. That, that Tom did but of course we're here today to talk about the Transformers G.I. Joe series that ran from 2014 to 2016 from IDW Comics and without further ado here is the main man Tom how are you sir doing really good it's good to talk to you guys excellent thanks so much for coming on big fans of your work whereabouts in the country are you Tom uh in Pittsburgh Pennsylvania hence yeah, the Steeler, uh, Steeler the, country the, yeah the love for Steeler yeah right yeah <laughs> yeah you know, I, I did some stuff with Steeler that, like, you can only do if, if you're from Pittsburgh. Yeah. You know, it was, like, some very specific Pittsburgh things. I know what Yins are talking about. One of my favorite file cards, the the last Pittsburgher. Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because like, that was one thing I've never seen in, in I mean, in, in any depiction of, of, like, Pittsburgh in the larger media, nobody mentions the Pittsburgh accent. Like, and it's such an exotic accent it's it's very strange i mean i don't i don't know how it sounds to you guys because i mean i'm i'm from philadelphia originally same state as pittsburgh but when i first came to pittsburgh and heard that accent i was astounded (laughs) it's thick it's a strong one isn't it so Mm -hmm. cool yeah i'm gonna cut straight to the chase how did you get into the funny book business and was it something that you had aspired to from a young age or something you kind of fell into yeah i mean it was it was aspirational i mean i wanted to you know be involved in art and storytelling in some form since i was a kid so you know i like a lot of kids i you know imagined growing up to be like a movie director or an animator or or making comics you know one of those or video game designer like those were all options and then when I, I got older and got into college and stuff and, and sort of tried my hand at all of those different things, the comics was, was the one that like I, I most connected with and saw a future in and then, you know, made my own comic zines, you know, where I, I do comics with, with some other guys and, yeah. and, and self-publish them. And then uh, with some of the material that I had been working on for like the next zine, I submitted that to the Zeric grant, which is, like a, a grant that was created by uh, Peter Laird of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And it was kind of, kind of designed to help people get their start in the industry. And I, I got the grant and uh, made my uh, comic, The Myth of Eight Opus, and got it you know nationally distributed to comic book shops. And that was kind of the start of the whole, of the whole thing. And it just kind of rolled from there. You know, once, once you have a comic... And, and, and the Xeric grant ha- has like a certain amount of cachet to it as well. So it kind of put me on, on a lot of people's radar and, and I just kind of you know, built from there. Yeah, that picked up some, some awards as well. So that's obviously good praise. Yeah. 
moving on to the the godland books etc but this particular project this transformers gi joe book how did that come about it was really like the beginning of like a new phase of my career because up to that point i had been doing almost exclusively creator-owned things you know like like godland and and then like my self-published things you know I, i do the odd um freelance job here and there but it was it was mainly like creator owned and i'd sort of you know hit a wall with it where i'd kind of felt like i'd sort of taken it as as far as i was going to take it and i felt like i try to tackle that sort of like the comics career that i envisioned as a kid like how i thought comics worked the way i thought comics worked was you submit something to, you know, like a Marvel or a DC, you know, IDW didn't exist back then, but, but, you know, you submit it and then it's like, okay, now you're the guy who's working on Spider-Man and then you get your Spider-Man every month, you know, you, you have this like steady supply of, of work and, and, and yeah. uh, like in the very, 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 very beginning, I'd sort of gone that route and then didn't really pursue it any further. And so I thought, well, let me really, you know, seriously pursue this comics thing, uh, submitting samples and things like that. And so I, I, you know, looked on the internet and saw like everybody's submission policy and stuff. And I saw like IDW submission policy and I'm like, okay, cool. You know, and it was basically like their submission policy is different now, but back then it was submit through their message board or something. And so I oh, wow. submitted some art through the message board and, um, you know, John Barber happened to see it and he knew my work and, you know, he was a fan of uh, Myth of Eight Opus and, and he was like, oh, cool. Tom Schilling wants to work with us. Great. And so then we started talking and, and he gave me some some assignments for like cover work and stuff. And then in pretty short order, he said, hey, I, I got this idea of uh, the uh, G.I. Joe team goes to Cybertron and... Mm-hmm. And I'm picturing it in like a Jack Kirby style. And so, of course, I thought of you, like, would you want to do that? And like, my head basically exploded. Like, <laughs> like it was like he delivered something on a platter that I could like just really run with. It was it was just, you know, so perfect. And I had just like the day before we talked, I'd been looking through some of my old sketchbooks, looking at different ideas. Marvel, Marvel had an anthology called Strange Tales. And I had come up with a story with with that in mind, Strange Tales. And it was... Sergeant Fury and the Howling Commandos during World War II go to Asgard and like they fight the the hosts of Asgard because at, at that point and I didn't know this at the time but I, it's also I think canonical that during World War II Asgard fought on the side of the Nazis. The explanation I think it was maybe through like Roy Thomas came up with it or whatever. But the explanation was you know some kind of uh, Loki's trickery or whatever trick. But uh, my my thought was that. This was before Donald Blake had found Thor's hammer. You know, Thor, Thor had been sort of dormant during this period. And, and that Thor is kind of like the conscience of Asgard and the link to like humanity and the earth where the other Asgardians are sort of like more cal- uh, callous and, and, and less connected to humanity and sort of, uh, you know, and so, so that, was, that was my basic premise. And it was like kind of a very similar dynamic that the Howling Commandos land in in asgard and just start like you know shooting everything up it was just like too perfect that like a day later john barber called me with like the hasbro version of that yeah wow wow tasty and it's a case of uh the little guy actually going into the jaws of hell and prevailing right you know i can't imagine like in my mind the howling commanders versus the asgardians surely that's over before it even began but i'm sure through some creative writing and some plot armor that made a very compelling story, just as Transformers versus G.I. Joe, you know, you kind of expect 
for Joes to be wiped out by these massive machines of death, but uh, they wind up becoming like an infestation. That whole genre, like the sort of Marvel, Jack Kirby, Stan Lee genre is all about the little guy triumphing against, you know, great odds. And that was something I gave a lot of thought to with the Transformers, because when I'd read about sort of people who would have like Transformers and G.I. Joe, like role-playing campaigns and stuff like that, they'd always talk about how it's like so unbalanced. The G.I. Joes are so outclassed by by the Transformers, just, you know, in terms of like firepower and strength and stuff. But, um, you know, as I gave it a lot of thought, I thought, well... First of all, once you possess nuclear weapons, everything's even. And I, I thought about how scary that would be if, you know, sort of like bugs, which a lot of people have a lot of fear about to begin with, these tiny things that could potentially do you harm. Maybe maybe if they had more intent, like they, they once said that like all the spiders on Earth could eat all of the human beings on Earth in like one day if they chose to. They just don't have the free will. So I thought of like the G.I. Joes from a Transformers perspective are these scary little gross little creatures that have agency, have free will, have tactical weapons, have nuclear weapons. That would be very scary to a Transformer, this idea of these gross meat bag little squishy things that could like sneak up on you while while you sleep and and, mm, and drop a virulent strain of green bombs down your throat <laughs> yeah i mean yeah in terms of a an infection an infectious disease i mean th those kind of themes are pretty prevalent at the moment <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah yeah as are as are the masks that that you know half the characters in yeah in it wear I was I was quite interested to read in the in the notes in the back of I've got the uh, quintessential edition in the back of the book you've got the the crib notes for each issue and I was quite interested to to read that one of the only GI Joe books you'd read prior was issue 21 now uh, I'm sure there were other GI Joe comics that you had but did you do a mass reread of all the the Harmer stuff before taking on the project and if that was the case and the G.I. Joe comics weren't an everyday thing in your childhood, was it more cartoon and toy based or what, what was your connection to these two franchises growing up? Yeah, my connection, it was cartoon and toy, both of them. Like I, I loved both the cartoons. They were kind of almost like, you know, like Star Wars and stuff. They were sort of the, the mythology of like my childhood of the eighties. And so I just knew it through, I, I hadn't gone any deeper. I hadn't gone into the comics at all, you know, and I, I liked both things, but they weren't, you know, lifelong obsessions the way, you know, some of the other, other things from my childhood were, but I, I, I you know, enjoyed and, and was the target audience. I was like, you know, that exact like age when they came, I think it was like in first grade when Transformers came out. But as, as I got older, like I had heard about through comics, I'd heard about the, snake eyes silent issue as being this like legendary comic like separate from gi joe fandom just like oh here's a great comic book to show you like how to tell a silent story and so i picked that up and, and loved it i thought it was great and then yeah i maybe had like one or two other like random gi joe issues maybe like 27 or so I, I forget what number it was and i read it and it was it was all right it didn't it didn't do a ton for me what i later learned was that's because it was out of context uh, once I got this assignment, I was like, okay, I have some studying to do because these are like two properties that have like huge, like obsessive fandoms attached to them. So I need to do my homework. And so I started reading like all the Transformers things I could get my hands on and all the G.I. Joe things I could get my hands on. And 
like I fell in love. Like the Larry Hama stuff, I loved it. And and it really was like the strength of it comes when you read it in context, when you read like a bunch of it in in a row and, and, and go back to the beginning. It's it's really this great ongoing comic book epic that just keeps building from issue to issue. And and one of the great like because I, I, I classify G.I. Joe as as a superhero comic, um, despite sort of the, the like military trappings. I, I think it fits squarely into into the, the superhero genre. And I like I think it's one of the great superhero comics of all times. Like, you know, put it up there with like the Chris Claremont X-Men. And it, I was just blown away by it. And, and and I'm I'm a fan now. Like I'm a, I'm a and I'm I'm up to date. Like I like I read you know the gi joe real american hero each issue as it comes out now i've, I've read the entire thing up, up to the present and and it's amazing to me that it still comes out still uh the same the same uh writer uh you know for pretty much the whole thing and that's like such a rarity in comics like when i think about other comics like how exciting that would be if you know like the original creator of i, I it's hard to say now because it's like you know uh stan lee uh steve ditko you know just just uh you know, died a year ago for Stanley, and then like two years ago for Ditko. But it would be like when they were alive, the idea of like if they had still been doing Spider-Man together, you know, uh, <laughs> into the 2000s, the 2010s. Uh, you know, yeah. it's a rarity. I, I guess now the equivalent would be uh, guys from the 90s, yeah. Spawn or Savage Dragon or something. But you know, something from the 80s to to still be going on. You know, it's kind kind of amazing. Yeah, definitely. Tom, what is so special about G.I. Joe or Transformers versus G.I. Joe to me is that you have, have paid such great reverence to what came before, but in many respects, you've picked what you've wanted, cut out the rest, remixed it a bit and come up with something so fresh that it kind of makes everything that has come before seem a little bit stale by comparison. I must say, Transformers versus G.I. Joe has kind of spoiled me because its world is so colorful and so unexpected. I mean, to a long-time G.I. Joe reader like me, it kept me guessing. Like, I didn't know what was happening on page 23 until I turned the page, you know what I mean? It has a very, very fresh and unexpected style. What inspired you, man? Like, what... What lit a fire under you and said, this is the story I want to tell? Was it something that you had in mind already? Or did it kind of morph through, you know, after engaging with the source material? Yeah, that I mean, that's pretty much it. I, I didn't have an in, uh, like a larger intention. You know, I, I'd had, like I said, just that sort of Sergeant Fury story idea. But I had a long lead time before the comic was going to come out. So I had a lot, a lot of time to think about and also i um even though like for a while the the project wasn't confirmed you know we were still kind of talking about it as like a maybe i saw the you know w what a huge undertaking it would be and also what a huge opportunity it was you know really just a, a great opportunity so even though it wasn't confirmed i started working like that day that john floated it as a potential idea i started working immediately because i knew that I had a lot of catching up to do and, you know, I needed to go in with some momentum. So I couldn't just sort of, and, and I thought, you know what, how do I justify this? Cause it was also, you know, people around me were kind of like, why are you working? Like, that's not confirmed. Like, why are you like, what if they don't do it? What if they don't do it? You waste. And I thought like, well, you know what? I really like what I'm coming up with here. So if they don't do it, then I'll just make it a creator. And I'll just do, um, it was going to be, um, star Morphins, 
versus the Icelandic army. And it was just going to be the Icelandic army fights these, like, you know, giant robots from space if the deal falls through. And, and so I committed to it. It had a long gestation period, and I was able to, you know, yeah, read all the source material and just let it percolate. And I did so much writing and, and rewriting. And what became clear to me was, because uh, I thought about, like, Snake Eyes, like the origin of Snake Eyes. It's rooted in Vietnam. Most, most of the G.I. Joe characters, their origins are, like, rooted in the Vietnam War. And I thought, well... You know, this made a lot of sense in, in the 80s uh, when, like, a Vietnam vet would be in their 20s or 30s. But, you know, in 2014, is Snake Eye, he's like an old man then. He's, he's you know, my dad's age or, so, you know, he's he, so king into the end. So it's like, okay, I you know, you have to update his origin, which which I assume has happened other times, you know, like, you know, with the movies or whatever. So I'm like, okay, I have to update his origin. And then once it was like, okay, I got to update his origin, then it's like, okay, well, this whole thing's a reset then. Like, I, I can you know, reset the clock and retell all the story and completely reinvent the thing. And, and I thought, okay, it's Transformers and G.I. Joe. It's not like Transformers meets G.I. Joe. This is its own thing. This is Transformers versus G.I. Joe. So I'm going to make it as though these characters were created for each other, as if their universe is, you know, intertwined and, you know, part of each other from the, from the beginning. And so that was kind of the beginning of, like, the invention from the top down. And again, yeah, like I had been reading all, all the source material. So it was like that played a part in it and was just this great like Lego set. It was like all these building blocks I had to play with all these amazing building blocks to, to create something new. Yeah. Yeah. Good. It's interesting that you say that you wanted to reset their backstories to like 2014 because nothing in the series really pegs it in a specific time frame. Like I always read it's uh, with the possibility that this could be set in the mid eighties, you know, back in the in the day, yeah, nothing about the tech or you know, they, they're not walking around with touch screens, smartphones. <laughs> well, you know, you know what's interesting? Like, I did so much writing for this and rewriting and rewriting that sometimes I forget what made it into the book and what ah, okay. stayed in my sketchbooks. But that was a decision too, because um, in in some earlier drafts, I placed it very clearly in a in a time. And the first adventure, like what would have been issue zero, was going to be like the hunt for Osama bin Laden. That was going to be the begin, like like where it starts. They're looking for Osama bin Laden, but instead they find Transformers. They went in the wrong cave. They 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 end up in the in the cave that the Ark crashed in instead of uh, you know when they're looking for Osama bin Laden. And I was working on that, and you know, like me and John had had some conversations and stuff, and it started to occur to me that comic books that you know these monthly things that come in month in month out what they're really about is they're about the eternal present and so any kind of like dating that i would do of the story would diminish that like i want every issue as it rolls out to be like here's what's happening right now and when you place that kind of thing of like oh it's you know world war ii or it's the 80s or it's it's uh you know, the, the early 2000s or you know it's it's no longer the eternal present so i sort of like abandoned you know, the, the sort of the time stamping, uh, there were some drafts where they did have smart devices. Like, um, uh, in one of the drafts for issue two, where they go to Cybertron, they have smartphones and, and they have that device, that, uh, app, which was kind of new. I forget the name of it, but it's the app where you can like hold it up to the sky and it shows you the stars and things like their positions. And so like, they were using like an app similar to that where it's like, okay, there's earth there, you know? So, so there, there were some where they just, they didn't make the final cut uh, again, you know, because, because of that decision to, to keep yeah, things. Definitely yeah. Definitely to its benefits. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I do want to ask about 
John's involvement in this, but first, I've got a message coming through, so if you just bear with me, um, it's a Transformers G.I. Joe pop quiz, it's a Transformers G.I. Joe pop quiz, question one. The Joes are poised for some much-deserved R&R, and luckily the Arbco Circus is in town. Unfortunately, three of the performers have fallen ill, a bad case of food poisoning. The show must go on though, so stand-ins are required, and the Joes are up to the task. Which Joes would you use as a best fit for the Human Cannonball, the Sword Swallower, and the Clown? <laughs> the Clown would be Chuckles, just because that's a good clown name. Yep. Uh, the Sword Swallower would be um, uh, Katana, <laughs> again, because of his name. Oh, wait, is, is there somebody named Katana? Am, am I getting my universes crossed? Quite I'm possibly. not familiar with Katana. I, okay, I'm, you know, I am, I am getting my my uh, my uh, universes crossed. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I would go with uh, Snake Eyes then. Snake Eyes. This, okay. This and and the Human Cannonball. The Human Cannonball. Uh, let's say Grunt. Okay. Fire that fire that <laughs> bastard right out. Yeah. Right, exactly. Like yeah, he seems made for for that kind of duty. <laughs> See you later. Break and replace. Um, <laughs> yeah. So so obviously John is credited on this book as well. And what was his involvement in terms of, you know, the the writing, or was he just a soundboard for for knocking ideas off of, or you know, how how did his role in this book take shape, and would it have been a different book without him? In the beginning, like his role sort of changed as it went on, because I was like on fire with this. It was you know like a state of like almost uh, hypomania with with this project. Like so, it was kind of like after a point, you know, he was just kind of like, okay, you know, you got this, <laughs> like, I'm going to stand out of my, you know, but going into this, like, we didn't know that, like, like going into this. And again, like I had collaborated with Joe Casey for like a really long time with Godland. So I had sort of had a lot of thoughts about how that collaboration was and, and what, if I, if I embarked on another collaboration, what would it be? And things that like, had a lot of ideas and things. And then, you know, it kind of, it took on its own, its own thing. But uh, initially when John proposed that sort of elevator pitch, it was going to be just, just me doing it. Okay. And then at a certain point, you know, like it just, it's such a fun project, you know, like it's a dream come true. And he said, you know, can I work on this with you? Can we like co-write it? And I thought about it and I was like, well, and this was like very early in, in, so I hadn't like read all the books yet and think and so i was kind of like well he's got his writer skills that he brings but he also has you know this like amazing knowledge of the characters and, and experience like working with the characters for years up to this point so that would be an amazing resource so sure yeah why not you know the more the merrier and my philosophy about writing at that point of collaboration was i'm just going to go in a hundred percent i'm going to write and write and write and i suggest you do the same go off and just write and write and write and then we'll convene from time to time and see what we got and like smash it together and see what happens and no egos just like you know if, if there's an idea that you know needs to be thrown out we throw it out you know it doesn't you know so that was sort of you know the philosophy like going into it and so for like issue zero and issue one and uh maybe issue two, issue zero and issue one you know like we'd each done like our you know we'd, we'd do a lot of talk we'd, we'd you know uh throw ideas back and forth and then write our little scripts and then show them to each and stuff like that and so you know and and sort of mix and match again like this was like one job that he had he had his sort of like editorial duties at at idw he had other books he was writing this and that so i'd sort of show up with like 
you know, hundreds of pages <laughs> and sketchbooks and stuff. And he'd have, you know, like, you know, the script, uh, you know, and, and, and it was just like, it became obvious that, and then a lot of times all this stuff we talked about and wrote and did, I'd like throw out and start from the beginning and, and come up with something totally new. There is so much cutting room floor stuff for this series. Like it's, it's kind of amazing. And I, and I was recently going through some old stuff and I found like a page that didn't make it into issue two. And I was like, should I just like finish this page a little bit, post it online and be like, Oh yeah, this was going to be an issue two. There just wasn't enough space. But anyway, so it was kind of like after like the first two issues, then it was kind of like, okay, Tom, you got this. And so then it was kind of, he became more of sort of like a sounding board and as it went on, but his role, what, like, even though the words you see on the page and the pictures and the store and the, are like maybe 99 and in some cases, a hundred percent mine in some, in, in some issues, the, the thing with collaboration, it's like what a collaboration is, is it's like when two people agree to collaborate. And then after that, you know, it's not like, okay, well, who did what? Like, like when I study Stanley and Jack Kirby, it's like, who did what? Who did, you know, like we're sort of obsessed with this, but really like, it's like just when you agree to collaborate, then, you know, everything else is like, who knows? Like you've, you've, you've collaborated. And so John had like, a, like a really important, like, first of all, he had the initial elevator pitch, which is key. So that in itself is, is like, you know, super valuable. And then great sounding board and then he did you know have some uh, you know so, some stuff from his scripts for issues zero one and two did make their way into the final cut or, or maybe inspired something that made it into the final cut so and then from there it's like this is our thing and then a big thing that he did which makes him so invaluable is he was like the guy who squared everything with hasbro because hasbro they never heard of me the the, the stuff i was turning in seemed really weird to them <laughs> they were like what is this you know in the, in the very beginning they were not sold john had to work very hard to sort of sell them on me and there were some tricky moments and then throughout the series like because i kept pushing the envelope and doing risky things and doing crazy things and dangerous things you know the sort of things that make these sort of corporate ip holders uncomfortable i was i was you know turning that dial up to 11 and john would have to defend these things in meetings and, and there's like all these like specific examples it's like that's a job in itself so so that was you know as it went on you know those you know that's how i see you know the collaboration mm, he was the man making all the drives down to rhode island <laughs> right yeah he yeah he I've, I've never been to the rhode island offices he he'd made a couple trips there during our our tenure on this book and and you know probably had to have a lot of uncomfortable conversations yeah. well you've opened the door to toys there tom I'm dying to know, man, because you have such great fidelity to some of the key details on the actual physical toys. Did you have an assembly of toys at your desk when you were working? Um, I did. I did. Like what happened, like especially early on when this thing was announced, it captured a lot of people's imagination and people like around me, people in my life, you know, friends and, and family. And, and so everybody was like offering donations of like, oh, you could borrow my collection you can oh here's here's the complete gi joe playing cards like people were, were just giving me all kinds of donations and stuff to, to to you and i i had some of my my own thing like i had i have a snake eyes and but yeah it was a lot of a lot of donations and stuff and and again there was this huge learning curve i had to, before i started working on this book i had to learn the mythologies but then also like the designs and and there was a lot of that a lot of like just filling up sketchbooks just trying to like you know, figure out like what what do these things even look like? You know. Well, you nailed Optimus's forearms, buddy. <laughs> yeah. 
among other things. I mean, I could go on in great detail about the things that absolutely tickled me as a toy fan. For instance, the number six sticker on the front of the snake armor that uh, uh, Dr. Venom wears. Yeah. Nice touches like that, man, really. There's so much to captivate a toy fan on the page. So, yeah, I I really drooled over all those details. That was, I mean, again, like we were talking about, that was a, a huge part of my relationship to to these series was the the toys not not the comics the toy the toys and the cartoons and yeah i would just sort of see these amazing toys and kind of as a kid and just sort of speculate what does that mean and that armor uh that we talked about with the six like that was something that like what is that and then when i saw it in in the cartoon and it was different from the toy because in the cartoon it was like they were robots they were used as robots or or at least in some of the cartoons correct but the toy was a guy in there you know it's it's armor and so I sort of played with it. all these like things that had sort of been percolating when I was a kid. Like, again, like I didn't have any large G.I. Joe or Transformers story in mind when I started this. But the um, Ultra Magnus toy I had as a kid and I never owned an Optimus Prime. I wanted one, but but I didn't own one. But I did have Ultra Magnus, which has like a little Optimus Prime inside. And so that thought, you know, was something I played with as a kid of like, what does this mean? That like this white Optimus Prime goes inside and becomes this totally other robot that has its own personality and its own story. Like, what does all that mean? And, you know, and sort of coming up with different ideas, like as a kid, and then finally as an adult getting to to play some of those scenarios out. Oh, enter Ghost Prime. You know, I have that written down as like one of my hell yeah moments. You know, integrating the white Ultra Magnus Prime as the sort of the ghost form that Optimus takes when he comes back from the dead. That's some incredible stuff, Tom. Like, like as I said before, just the freshness that you brought to the series is so invigorating. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know if, if it was for you guys, but the return of Optimus Prime, like, in the cartoons was a big deal. Like, like as a kid, it was kind of like, I hadn't seen Transformers, the, the movie, in the theaters, so I wasn't one of those kids who got uh, traumatized by seeing Optimus Prime die. But I did hear about it, and eventually it came on VHS, and so I was kind of, like, ready for it and stuff. And so it was like, the idea, wow, Optimus Prime is dead. And then on the cartoon, they start teasing the return of Optimus Prime. It's like, Optimus Prime is coming back. And it was, you know, day after day, it was, I think it was even a multi-part story, too. So, like, they're building, it was a moment. Like, it was a real moment. So I was definitely going to do something with that. In, in the comic yeah i tell you some toys that i would love and buy in a heartbeat if they made them were your versions of the october guard and us7 now they they need to be toys of those <laughs> yeah i i was uh, really happy with with them and they they almost just have sort of cameos throughout the con they pop up here and there but at some point in my life i'd like to return to to those uh two sets of characters specifically i think they could carry their own series yeah and if you're listening people hasbro idw let's let's get that done figures done and let's get an idw series commissioned for that and also i am going to hold you to another thing from the book because in july 2025 i'll be eagerly awaiting the shipwreck space pirate series so let's hope that comes out yeah i like i had a lot of fun with the file cards and the caption boxes and and um you know I, i was like very playful with them and stuff and i thought like yeah like that's another thing that could carry its own series is and again like all the cutting room floor stuff like i have you know adventures of shipwreck space pirate and and how he you know captures the the 
Decepticon flagship nemesis and all this, all this stuff, you know, and that just never, all, all that it makes into the book is when he like, you know, shows up all of a sudden with that. And then the caption box tells you that there's a whole backstory and it'll be, yeah, in Shipwreck Space Pirate uh, in stores in, in 2025. And at the time, 2025 seemed like so <laughs> impossibly distant. I'm like, who knows? You know, maybe by then I'll get around. And now it's like, oh, it's 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 coming up. If if if, if that's going to be a thing, maybe you know. We yeah. gotta... If we're all still here by then, yeah. You, yeah. You you talked briefly there about the file cards, and obviously these are scattered across every single issue. And was there a conscious decision to make some of them kind of jokey and some of them just a, a description of what the character does? Or and how did you go about deciding which ones were going to be which? I mean, some of my favourites are I love. Big lob, Dr. J with a hand grenade. I, I can, I'm just picturing Dr. J going down the lane, stuffing mm-hmm. grenades in New York Nick's pockets as he as he goes to slam <laughs> dunk. I just uh, that's just an image. I, I want to see that as as a pinup. And um, Doc, he's uh, good with a knife, is a classic. And Destro's probably my favourite one, which is what Gunmaker, Life Taker, Dream Breaker, Earth Shaker, Money Raker. Brilliant. Again, like I was coming into this with like such a head of steam. This this whole project. And prior to, to this, I, I'd been involved for like maybe a year or two of just like experimenting, experimenting with web comics, experimenting with the comics form. And so just, you know, had all these like ideas just swirling all this. Exp- and, and so I was ready to like experiment and, and then play out the results of some of these experiments in this series. And it was just like, how many different ways do you have to communicate story in a comic? How many different ways can you communicate information? How many? And the audience is primed like social media, you know, had been around for a while by this point. And it's like, we are able to process all kinds of disparate information strains simultaneously. And the comics form is kind of perfect. And so like the file cards were just one more way of kind of like seamlessly getting more information in there. And again, like the first issue of this was a zero issue free comic book day book. And it was going to be like a 15 page story. I think, uh, you know, they were like a little shorter than a normal comic book. And it's like, I have, you know, this story I've been working on for months, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages. How do I make just a 15 page comic about, you know, I have so many things I need to say. And, you know, and so it was like, okay, the file cards, you got a little bit of backstory and yeah. And, and they became sort of this thing where I could, you know, kind of riff and use them, Again, yeah. However, I needed it. Use them as a as a joke, as uh, you know, information, as as um, exposition, in in sort of a, a playful, seamless, fun way. Yeah, very much so. It, I mean, it it worked. It gives you a chuckle every time I read those. So that's that's fantastic. Um, another thing that uh, I kind of wanted to touch on was, and I know Steve, you've probably got an opinion on this as well. What particular part of the book are you most pleased with in terms of you see as the series high point that where you're most proud of the contribution you made to these two franchises and the mythos surrounding these franchises and then you know steve maybe you can say what your favorite part was and then i'll I'll add my one tough to pick go ahead tom (laughs) it is hard to pick i mean because like to me there's there's sort of two there's like the very beginning of the series where i sort of come in with so much energy and again since i had such a long lead time i was like champing at the bit to kind of just you know let this stuff out so like issue zero i've never spent uh six months writing a 15 page comic before because <laughs> because i was writing like the whole series but again that was the first issue so i got to pour all so technically it was like six months to write 
15 pages. So I got to sort of perfect it. It was like exactly the way I wanted it to be. And when that came in, I thought, you know what? Like when I had my, my sample copy of it and I read it, I'm like, this is the best I have to offer. Like this, and this, this is it. Like, and if you don't like this, then I don't know what to tell you. I can't do anything for you. Like you're going to have to read somebody else's comic because this is the best I got, you know, this, this is it, you know, and then it came out and it was a huge hit and, and the whole thing just went from there. You know, it was, it was, it was great. But like in that moment before it came out, it was like, this is the, you know, and, and so like, I really have strong feelings about that, that zero issue. But like, I feel like the best issues are the ones like towards the end. Cause there's kind of like the beginning, I come in with a full head of steam and then there's the point where it's like, okay, now I don't have six months to make these issues anymore. I have a month or two months or let, you know, like, like you're under the gun from that point on. So it's like, it's all a blur. Like, I don't remember, but then towards the end, I was like, okay, this book is late. You know, the little scheduling hiccups and, and missed deadlines all along have like accumulated to the point where like the book I had planned for it to take me a year. It took me two years. And so I was like, you know what? I'm not even going to worry about the schedule. I'm going to just take all the, the time it takes to make these. And so the last couple issues I I'm really proud of like the, uh, starting with the, uh, issue with like that centers around Scarlet, mm. uh, the Scorponok thing, like, like that, that to me was like this like golden era where the series, like, like those are the heights of it. You have sort of like the manic heights of the early issues and then the later issues, I'm so proud of that body of work in the last like third of, of the series. What about yourself, Steve? Oh, buddy. Uh, too many to mention, but Tom, you hit the nail on the head, man. My my favorite single issue has got to be Headmasters, mm-hmm. which is the, the Scarlet, very introspective, trying to fight her way out of the mind control of Scorpionok and Dr. Mindelbinder. Mm-hmm. But getting back to issue zero, and obviously the stakes were very high, it being free comic book day and the kind of the distribution and the amount of eyes on that issue would be bigger than, than, than any other, you know, issues. It was yeah, kind of a make any, or break any, moment. Bigger than any comic I've ever done in my life, that, there, you know, that, that issue. <laughs> no pressure, buddy. Right. <laughs> I'm really captivated by this silent interlude one page where Snake Eyes, the unmasked Snake Eyes, finds himself in Cobra Commander's car lot and encounters Starscream. And it is very poetically written. Of course, there's no dialogue because it is silent interlude, but it is full of poetry, man. Are the words yours? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I, I, I'd say probably like 90 to 100% of, of the, the words are, are, are mine in, in, in these books. Buddy, they are so sublime. Like, I would blow this up and put this on my wall. <laughs> when the gods of war close a window, they sometimes open a door. Salvation is a gold bug. I mean, it's it's got great meter. I mean, it kind of reminds me, in a way, of uh, Larry's file cards on the, the backs of the action figure cards. You know, it's, there's a kind of a, a rhythm to it, which is just so well measured. So, hats off to you, man. Thank but as you. I say, my, 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 my top uh, honors goes to your work on Headmasters. Fantastic. And full That's of interesting, fresh takes on how the Headmasters come about, how Scarlet faces her demons. I mean, it's got a lot of, of bite. That issue is hard as hell, man. <laughs> it's bloodthirsty, and it's a, a trial by fire for uh, Miss O'Hara. 
Yeah, man. Riveting stuff. It's, it's a great standalone issue. I would recommend that first to anyone who's considering the series. I'd be like, have a little taste of this. It'll blindside you. I mean, those those later issues, you know, starting with Headmasters, that was also like, some of them are some of the earliest ideas I had. I had like a bunch of ideas sort of before I really dug deep into the mythology of these things. And then and then the shape of the story started to, to take more sort of inspiration from the originals. But that was one... Uh, that and like the Destro story, those were stories that I'd kind of had like a version of at the very, very, very beginning, like like in my earliest, you know, sort of idea, like th- those. And, and so having them sort of gestate for all that time, and then when their moment arrives in the story, it's like, you know, they were very, um, you know, very fully. Like I said, like just uh, yeah, I'm really proud of that last chunk of of the series. And to your point about the writing in the silent interlude part, like as, as a creator, I was kind of in a transitional point up to this point. I had been kind of defined by my uh, fandom and devotion to like the work of Jack Kirby, like, you know, very and very um, intentionally. So, like I, I, I wanted to make work that was like Jack Kirby. But when uh, John approached me about working on this series, I had s- sort of started moving away from that in a big way. And then it was kind of like, oh, we have this thing and we want you to bring the Kirby. And so I was bringing something like very different than Kirby. And, you know, Hasbro was kind of like, oh, well, you know, we kind of signed on for like a Kirby thing. You know, if you can't do a Kirby, maybe we'll find something. So and you sort of see the Kirby kind of like fade away as the series goes on. But it was like, I enjoyed working in the Kirby mode. That is a mode I'm very comfortable with. I I love, I had just sort of moved on to sort of other things. But I was like, if you want Kirby, I can do Kirby. And writing... And drawing in the Kirby style is so much fun. So that issue zero is like, it's almost like the last hurrah for like my Kirby mode. And like the writing in that Snake Eye Silent Interlude, it was like, okay, I am going in that particular page. Because all the different pages, each page has a different approach to making comics. And on that Silent Interlude page, I'm like, okay, I'm going to do the like sort of classic Kirby approach. Six panels, heavy narration, and purple, purple, purple prose. And so I just went to... T- and, and again, like I said, that kind of writing is the most fun writing. Like, for the writer, it is so much fun. So I was just kind of playing to a strength, to a muscle that I'd sort of developed, you know, to, to a really good extent by that point. Yeah, and I think you kind of said it as well there, that the, that Kirby style was kind of very prominent in those first few issues. And then it does mute or fade away a little bit, and then we get more of your kind of recent style and also there was a few pages very kind of frank millerish as well kind of dark nighty yeah. i thought in there obviously intentional um but mm-hmm. in terms of in terms of my personal favorite kind of punch in the air moment um, there's a few little bits that i liked small smaller moments such as uh, dr venom being pronounced dr phenom I thought was mm-hmm. uh, was <laughs> was a fantastic bit, and you also mentioned in the notes that you think he's one of the the greatest comic book villains of all time. Yeah, yeah, up there with the Joker. Again, he was new to me. He he never showed up in the cartoons. I don't remember. There wasn't there wasn't a toy. I don't remember him. And so as I'm reading these, how I'm like, I fell in love with the character. I'm like, this guy is great. This guy is like, he's like so evil, and he knows it, and he loves it, and he almost he almost knows he's in a comic book, even like like. He just popped. He just really stood out, and I'm like, I'm doing something with this guy. Like this, 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 this is a star here. 
Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I, lo- I love Covergirl getting married to Braun. I thought that was good. <laughs> my Little Pony showing up at the end. That was uh, very good. Mm-hmm. I think one of my favourite issues, because I-, I can't really pinpoint one, but it's one that doesn't really involve many Transformers for the-, the meat of the issue, and it's actually issue 11, the Duke versus Falcon issue. Yeah. Because that is... I'd just come off... When I did the reread, I actually read that issue yesterday. I just watched rocky four in fact the night before mm-hmm. and you know i was full of kind of pumped up 80s yeah uh, superhero-esque movies and just the reminiscence of arnie movies and stallone and this kind of blown up action and it's just there's a, there's a lot to it though there's a lot of you know big moral compass to that issue that you did and yeah, I just it it harkens back to issue eighty two from the original run, that training camp mm-hmm, issue, yeah. and also the Operation Wingfield, which I think is maybe number four, mm-hmm. possibly. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that that issue again, you know, in the grand scheme of things of the whole story, there's not many Transformers involved, so it's in some ways the most grounded, non balls out the bathtub crazy issue but i don't know something about it really resonated and hit me hard yeah all that like sort of 80s cinema you know stuff like heartbreak ridge and the, the um was the richard gear officer and a gentleman officer and a gentleman that was like a you know big uh you know top gun like all that kind of stuff and um and yeah like the way the transformers figure into that it was like because all this like ground level training that they're doing is training for going to Cybertron and fighting giant robots. So like they're kind of there in the back, like there'll be like cardboard cutouts of them that they shoot at or, or, you know, jump (laughs) over or whatever of, of the transformers. Yeah. Jet hook foo. Love it. Yeah. Tom, I think you're the first person to really give some meat to the bones of Falcon and Duke's brotherly relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the shared mother, different father, you know, Duke getting the, the, the rod, as it were, and um, Falcon very much more getting the, the carrots. Again, like, as a kid, I knew, like, I watched the G.I. Joe movie, like, the animated movie, and so, like, that did, it's kind of like, okay, he has a brother named Falcon, he's uh, got a different last name, he, you know, and, and his brother's, like, like a screw-up, and, and he's very serious, and, and they don't look alike. Like they don't, they don't look like brothers that, you know, uh, you know, Duke's sort of blonde and Falcon is, uh, you know, dark haired and, and even, um, like he's like Italian, uh, uh, Italian, Italian American, like myself. Yeah. And so I'm like, so the webs start weaving and you're like, what's the story there? And, and it just kind of that sort of curiosity as a child sort of, again, it had decades to, uh, to germinate. And, and so it you know comes out in that few other master strokes making cutter the hairdresser genius <laughs> and uh, another brother connection that i think you might have been the first one to to make was soundwave and shockwave right yeah they have the same last name brilliant <laughs> absolutely brilliant Spe- speaking of which we do have to take a quick interlude because it's time for a transformers gi joe pop quiz it's transformers gi joe pop quiz question two it's dark The sun is setting, and the big bots are coming out to play. Play music, that is. It's a cassette party battle. Soundwave ejects Ravage and Frenzy to battle Blaster and his cassettes. What music's encoded on Ravage and Frenzy? I sort of had this in mind, because there's a point in Transformers vs. G.I. Joe where they hold Blaster up in the air, and and he's projecting a sound that, like, destroys stuff. And and so, uh, of course, I pictured it being... uh, 
you know, Peter Gabriel in your eyes, you know, fr- from uh, Say Anything. So I'll, okay. I'll go with that on, on one of the tapes. Okay, no. <laughs> um, was it always planned to be a free comic book issue and a 13 issue maxi series or was there ever an option for it to be an ongoing from the beginning like we had talked about it just to sort of present it as an on not say like oh by the way guys this thing's ending in in you know but like our plan was we'd work on it for you know 12 issues and then that would be that do like a watchman do a complete story and then the free comic book day came in so it's like oh okay now it's 13 issue, you know, and then, and, um, but yeah, it was always planned to be a discreet, but again, like I was coming in with this full head of steam and I was like, you know what? Like, I don't want to spend my whole life working on transformers or what like, but you know what? This is so much fun. If by the end of it, like, well, we'll tell our story. And if by the end of it, I'm like, sign me up for more. I want more Then we'll keep it up. But, but yeah, the other than that, other than like, if I'm feeling like the, the inspiration to keep going, uh, the plan, yeah, was just a discrete story, and so it ended up being, yeah, like, like what, yeah, it was thirteen, it was thirteen issues, and and uh, was it thirteen issues, and a, and a, and the um, free comic book day, or was it twelve issues? It was something, like, but it, was, and then the last issue is like double length, but it was like the the initial intent was to do like a Watchmen, do a, a twelve issue thing. Yeah, it was thirteen issues, and the and the zero. Yeah, and then you did a sort of a movie treatment, which was a lot of fun as well. Yeah, that was something I'd, because um, I thought like, oh, maybe we could do like an annual at some point. So I, <laughs> I came up with that script and it was largely based on sort of like the story I had come up with before I went deep on the source material. But it was just this very nice little concise telling of, of like the the whole story. And like, I was really happy. It's with like that. a trailer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. it's sizzle real. I sort of had these ideas about comics based on movies and how you're just looking at like a very very condensed version of like this other thing and so that's why i wanted to make this very very condensed version of this like other thing that actually doesn't exist well it worked it it was a nice little end piece because in the back as well there's interviews with with the fake actors who were (laughs) taking part in the movie which was pretty cool yeah that i i viewed it as almost like a victory lap like if i get out of this alive like if i finish this whole series then I'm going to do that script as like, okay, yeah, yeah, victory lap, like, okay, this was fun, you know, just like this fun way to go out. Then sort of like the idea of doing these like, you know, fake interviews and, and like behind the scenes of the production of the Transformers versus G.I. Joe movie. When I added that element of it, then it really, you know, took on its own, like now, then it became this like worthwhile project in its own right, not just like an addendum to another project. Yeah, yeah. I did want to ask you about, a character that for pretty much most of the book is coming off the worst of anyone and that's billy he kind of ends up part human part robot part lizard and you know i I was feeling sorry for this guy for most of the the story but then at the end he kind of dons the mask and becomes snake eyes 2.0 and he's got the cobra emblem and then he's kind of a force for good almost at the end was was that an arc that you were always trying to tell with Billy, or was he always just going to be a tragic figure? Well, I mean, Billy, again, that's like another character I didn't know about before I started diving into the to the research. 
And yeah, like reading it with fresh eyes. Like I'm reading these 80s comics from my childhood that I had never read before. So it was kind of this like time travel kind of thing. So I'm reading all those Hama issues. And Billy really is like just all the worst things that can happen. happen to, he's almost like a, um, a martyr figure. He's like sort of like a classic, you know, just getting like beaten up by the world and, and taking it like, yeah. like, uh, you know, through suffering grace, you know, that, that kind of dynamic, like very, you know, very like old cut from a different kind of storytelling cloth than your typical comic book. I amped that up in this where like, he really was like, he was going to catch the worst of it. And he has like all these good intentions, like he's, his good intentions don't keep the world from beating him up. And, and he, he gets it from every, he gets, the the GI Joe's beat him up. Snake Eyes, you know, th- probably doesn't doesn't the worst, but it's like he is sort of like a central figure in this whole. Th- I mean, he's you know in like the New Gods or whatever. He'd be o- Orion. He's like you know Dark Side Sun or Luke Skywalker or yeah. Christ or, or or Harry Potter. You know, he's this like central central character, and and he has to go through this this like real trial by fire and then yeah of course by the end you know becomes stronger as a result as well as the october guard and us7 spin-off and the shipwreck space <laughs> pirate spin-off i now want to see a team-up book with harry potter christ billy <laughs> i forget whoever the other ones were but i want that spin-off book tom was it always your plan for general flag to be played by larry homer because that was one hell of a reveal, buddy. <laughs> yeah, I, from early on, I had an I like that he's got these sunglasses. So like, there's going to be some kind of reveal when he takes this. And so I considered different options, and it's like, okay, maybe he'll be he'll take off the glasses, and he's the hard master, or mm. maybe he takes off the glasses, and he's me. Maybe he takes off, you know, maybe he takes off the glasses, and he's Larry Hama. Like I had all these like different like I wanted there to be a reveal. And then as it went on, it's like, okay, there's only one person it could be. And it's got to be, you know, it's got to be Larry. It's, his name is Larry, you know? Yep. So, uh, you know, I had to do it. And tip of that, because like, you know, so much of what this series is, is like a huge tribute to what he did. And a lot of the energy I got working on this was fueled by just how much I enjoyed those G.I. Joe comics. It was like so invigorating. I really, really fell in love with the comic I didn't expect that to happen. And I fell in love with the comic and it really, you know, informs a, a lot of what, what happens in this. It, so I had to, uh, you know, whether he likes it or not, I had to, to <laughs> you know, tip my hat to Larry and give him the tribute because he's like, uh, I'm a fan for life. Are you aware uh, of whether he's uh, read the book or not? Well, I mean, I would assume he has not because oh. he pretty famously says he doesn't read anybody else's gi joe comics he doesn't want to know he you know and and even like chuck dixon is is like a close friend of his he doesn't read the chuck dixon stuff like so that's pretty mm. famously out there so i would assume he has not read uh I, I hope maybe he's heard about them maybe somebody said oh it's great i love and and it's a huge tribute to, and hopefully uh he's he's comfortable with that but who knows we put these things out there and, and, and they're for the world. Well, I'd like to think he'd be pretty tickled that he was the general who was pretty much calling the shots in the book. <laughs> it's very, very Larry to be the old campaigner. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I can see that. Now it's time for... It's a Transformers G.I. Joe. Pop quiz. It's a Transformers G.I. Joe. Pop quiz. Final question. So, eight-year-old Tom is on a four-hour road trip. He's stuck in the back of the car with some music blaring that he just doesn't care for. What toys or games does he play along the way to pass the hours? 
Well, I get car sick if I try to read in the car, especially when I was a kid sitting in the back seat. I remember getting sick reading the uh, Indiana, the Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, comic book adaptation. But um, we on car trips, we used to have these little these little board games that were magnetic and they were and they were flip. They're like known. You know, um, you can like find them on eBay or whatever. But I, I forget the name. They were like called like three in one or flips or something. And it was these um, magnetic pages that you flip through, and each page would have a different board game uh with magnetic pieces and and it would be like um you know it was like triathlon or or uh olympics or you know themed what was was the one so it'd probably be that cool cool i'm trying to think what i used to do on car journeys i think i would try to read but get car sick and then next time i'd think well that was just a one-off i'll try it again and just repeat it over and over again <laughs> right yeah you know like um in the movie napoleon dynamite he like takes like a little, uh, like He-Man, like a wrestling figure and ties a string to him and throws him out the window and drags him. Like, I wish I would have known about that when I was a kid, because that, that would have been fun. <laughs> Not for the action figure. Yeah, I wonder how many uh, destroyed toys that would have led to, though. Ouch. Yeah, yeah. I'll go one for you, Tommy. Yeah, go on. Do you feel like there were any missed opportunities, things that, if given more time, you would have liked to have circled back or have uh, introduced more fully and more expanded on, instead of kind of you know, paying as much lip service to a broad base of characters as possible, but not necessarily getting to get on the brass tacks of each and every one of them. I like that approach. Like, I prefer having a huge cast to work with and go as deep as I want to or, or as shallow as I want to. I don't enjoy going super deep on one character, typically. But for the series, I mean, I feel like it's it's all there. Like, I did my thing with it. I told the story I wanted to tell. There were some... You know, it's like you can either go this way or that way, and so you go this way, and as a result, you can't go the other way. So there's some of those, and like, the time we're living in right now, I've been sort of like looking through old sketchbooks and, you know, you know, going through old stuff, and there's like, <laughs> there's so much cutting room mm. floor material for this. Globulus and Pythona, perhaps? Those are the cameos yeah. that really mm -hmm. jumped out at me. I was like, whoa, there they are. Unmistakable. Yeah, it's such a rich universe you could i mean you could just like take like almost any random element and just and just run with it so i mean the material exists like like if i if i chose to i could devote you know a year of my life or whatever to uh pursuing any of the any of these things but at the at the moment it's not it's not what i wanted to, maybe next year i'll be all fired up about about you know doing like you know, one, one thought I'd, I'd had was if I were going to do this over again or if I was going to do a sequel or whatever, it would just be like Snake Eyes riding around the country in the Optimus Prime, you know, truck going from town to town, like an 80s TV show, like Magnum P.I. or Knight Rider or, or BJ and the Bear or whatever, like going from town to town. And like each issue is like they get involved in some kind of, you know, thing in that town solve the problem and then get back in the truck and like move on move on to the next town like <laughs> that, that that i keep thinking about that and um again like i could really but but no like no regrets nothing where it's like oh we should have gotten that in there there was one issue that i had written and then i was like you know what we can't do this issue right now we're gonna do do and so then we did something else so there's like kind of like a whole issue where it's like it's young Optimus Prime, young Megatron, young Alita One, and a point where like they're all friends, and so before things go sour, 
and it was kind of like a sweet, you know, really, you know, kind of beautiful story. And but, but again, the time wasn't right for it in the series, like, like, like where I was going to put it. So I just kind of like put it aside. So that, you know, that 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 could be a pretty cool, you know, standalone comic at, at some point. I'm so desperate now to add that to the list of other comics I want to see you make. So yeah. Tom, I've really enjoyed this reread, buddy. Uh, a few things that jumped out of me that never did before was the the panel where <laughs> Baroness is being chatted to by Crystal Ball, and he's kind of like divining that there's a child coming. Mm-hmm. And you quoted uh, issue 14 uh, from the classic run, where she has a single uh, line of text, which is, I'm late. Yes. And uh, <laughs> I had not realized before <laughs> what that is in reference to, or you've kind of changed the context of that panel. Brilliant. Brilliant. Towards the end of the series, I had so much fun with that of just like taking panels, you know, and doing collage and taking panels. Because again, such great work that, that the, the Hama G.I. Joe is, is just amazing. And then, and there's even like in one of the last issues, there's a couple pages. Well, the, I mean, I, I fully reprinted the funeral of uh, uh, General Flag, Flag, except I I made it, you know, General Hawk. But those were the moments where I'm like, okay, I'm really having fun. Like, I'm really getting away with something here. Like, this is so, this is so much fun. Oh man, brilliant Easter eggs. And and there was the double page splash with the, the Decepticon army facing off against the Autobot army. And for the first time I realized, hang on, you have illustrated over their box arts with Devastator, with the uh, yeah. Insecticons. Mm-hmm fantastic man it's uh, it's, yeah it's very rewarding to a long time toy fan yeah definitely i think in in some of the notes in the back of the the book as well you kind of mentioned you want it to be a a close inspection that that warrants rereads because every time you read it and on that page each page you'll see something else there's lots of fine details there and i think this is i've when i finished it i was like Right, I've got a lot of things to do, and especially paying paying work. But my first thought was, "Shit, I want to read this right again, right now." So, <laughs> yeah. Tom, really fantastic pleasure to make your acquaintance, man. Yeah, it was good talking. I'm a big fan, brother. <laughs> Listen, we have taken up a lot of your time here, Mr. Showtime Showley, so we appreciate you coming on. Um, I hope the listeners have, have had a blast. I've certainly had a fantastic time, and it's, it's been uh, a true honour to get you on and, and get your thoughts on this, this seminal book, which I think will go down in both Transformers and G.I. Joe history as, as one of the all-time greats. So thanks so much for coming on. If the fine people out there want to take a look at your other work and what you've got coming up, uh, where can they find your stuff? Well, I've got a new book coming out in July from 10 Speed Press. Uh, It's called Jack Kirby, The Epic Life of the King of Comics. And it's a comic book. It's a graphic novel, whatever you want to call it. A big fat comic book that tells the story of Jack Kirby's life from from you know birth till death and and then um his uh legacy you know his effect on pop culture and it it was i'm so proud of it it's a labor of love and i I can't wait for everybody to see it that sounds amazing sign up get that i know i will be and i had actually have one more question for you i have read sporadically here and there jack kirby comics but i've never actually read an extended run by him shame on me chief and can you just recommend me maybe one or two good they're all good runs but good for a 
someone who's coming in at, having never read an extended Jack Kirby run, what what kind of two books should I be dipping my toes into? Well, New Gods and Mr. Miracle, and they have currently in print, there's, you know, like a Jack Kirby's New Gods volume, there's a Jack Kirby Mr. Miracle volume, so e- easy to get your hands on, read those, they're great, they're perfect, like, to me, they're like the, the high point of his work, they're his best stuff, and yeah, they're 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 accessible, they have like the beginning, you know, middle and, and end of, of each of those stories. Perfect, perfect, done, I'm, I'm going shopping right now. Okay, once again, we'd like to thank Tom for coming on, and we will see you down the road! Yo, Joe. Yo, Joe. Yo, Joe. Yo, Joe. Yo, Joe. Yo, Joe.